Good morning. It's a glorious day. Again and again, our Western teacher in monastic life, Ajahn Sumaito, Again and again he would have a morning reflection. So many times he started with this phrase, yesterday is a memory, tomorrow is unknown, and now is the knowing. Memories appear in the heart now. We can recollect if we had breakfast. I can recall my gratitude for the porridge. Some beings don't like porridge. Maybe they can recall the respectfully bypassing. (laughs) Now is the knowing of that memory. The future is unknown. When will I have that insight? Will this pain ever end? What's going to happen later today? What's going to happen in 15 minutes? Future is unknown. We don't know. Now is the knowing of imagining speculation about the future. Now is the knowing of recollections of the past. Now is the knowing of what is manifesting in body, in-breath, out-breath, sound, sights, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts, images. In the Sharangama, Sutra, that discourse on the indestructible. The Buddha mentions that uh, the primary misconception about the mind and body, he said, is this false notion that the mind dwells inside the physical body. He said, you do not know that the, the body this body, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, the great earth herself, all appear within the wonderful, bright, true mind. Yet we sometimes wrongly feel like we're located inside this body. He said, that's a primary misconception that this body 
right now is appearing, its resonance, the sight of the room or this body is being reflected, it's appearing within consciousness. Sound of my voice appearing within consciousness. As we look out the window and receive the trees and space and buildings of spirit rock, appearing within The Buddha, it's an analogy, but the Buddha said, actually, this mind is sky-like. He's not saying the mind is the sky, but he said the mind is like the sky. Boundless. A Stanzas, few stanzas in the Dhammapada are some of my favorites about this. He said, there are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. We go looking for the wise ones somewhere else. There are no footprints in the sky. Why not? (laughs) There's no ground. What appears in the sky keeps dispersing. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there, somewhere else. Worldly beings delight in what he called papancha, complexity. This is better, that's worth, it's a like that I don't like. Buddha's delight in the ending of that. In Pali, it's beautiful sound, akase padang nati, samano nati bahire papancha biratapaja, nipapancha tatagata. Nipapancha, the ending of this proliferating mind. When we are fooled by our thoughts, it creates all these categories. When actually, The true nature is sky-like as everything is dissolving, emptying. There are no solid things inside or outside. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. We keep looking for the sage. We think we found it. We grasp at it and it shifts, changes. We look somewhere else. Where do we find the sacred sage? Where do we meet the Buddha? The Buddha says right here, we meet the sacred ground here. That first stanza goes like that, then it repeats. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. Eternal conditioned things, there aren't any. The, the Pali phrase is sankara sasata nati. Nati means no. Eternal conditioned things, nati. 
Kase padang nati samano nati bahare sankarasa satanati in this last line. Nati putanang jivadang. Buddhas never waver. No footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. When we're imagining we can really hold on to something because it keeps shifting and changing, we're wavering all over the place. The Buddha, the awakened one, honors the sacred nature of the ephemeral and how it keeps merging with the unmoving, not grasping the Buddha is still at ease, able to respond without confusion or obstruction. The mind is sky-like, an important term that we encounter in the Dhamma is emptiness. Master Wa helped me. I'm grateful for him helping me get a feeling for emptiness. Sometimes examples help. I came up earlier in the morning, walked in and saw no one was here. So the hall is empty. He wasn't there at the moment I came in, but I've come in at times when Gulu's already there sitting. Let's say you thought, oh, the hall is empty. Then you say, oh, there's Gulu there already sitting peacefully. Did Gulu destroy the emptiness? (laughs) (laughs) Master Wa said he occupied the emptiness. Do do birds that fly through space fight with the sky? There's a wonderful relationship between form and emptiness. They seem separate. If we really want emptiness, not to have anything in it, then we we see some flicker of something. Oh, the emptiness has been destroyed. In the Heart Sutra, when we, and in our contemplation, when we contemplate anything like a sound, you might think, I like the sound, I don't like the sound. Good sound, bad sound. But if we listen closely, the sound as it's vibrating is empty of solidity. Master Wa said it's like a a bubble floating on a river. Some see the bubble and say, there it is. The bubble exists. 
and it pops. And someone else pipes up and says, see, it doesn't exist. Then it reappears. It does. It doesn't. It does. It doesn't. Language can't really capture Forms are empty of solidity, but the emptiness within the emptiness manifests forms. They're actually not two. They're part of one mysterious, sacred suchness. The attachment to categories and views and doctrines and my knowledge based on misunderstanding of thought, then we want to say it is, it isn't, it's good, it's bad. Master Wa has a composed something about this. He said, true emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness. Master Wa goes on to say, what is our true nature, our self-nature like? It's like empty space. Would you say there's anything in empty space? There's absolutely everything in empty space. But you cannot see it. The existence within emptiness is wonderful existence. The lack of emptiness within emptiness is true emptiness. Since true emptiness is not empty, It is called wonderful existence. Since wonderful existence is not existence, it is called true emptiness. These two names are one. You investigate them in detail and find, however, there is not even one. When we want things to really exist, that's what happens when we imagine this pleasant mood is me and we lean on it. And guess what? That creates birth and death. How does death happen? Birth. We identify with, lean on, what the Buddha called upadana, take birth in a mood, in a circumstance, birth. As that mood, that form, that situation shifts and changes, that's aging. Then when it's gone and we feel dislocated, it's called death. Seeking a new form, definition, a me, that's samsara. 
when we want existence really to exist, that causes suffering. So we let go of grasping and taste peace. Ah, a beautiful taste. But then sometimes we get our first taste of peace, we just, we don't want contact anymore. Because that hurts sometimes. And sometimes we love that feeling, so we, like me and my war against clocks, that's called, as Ajahn Chah would say, my chalot, not very smart. (laughs) My emptiness wasn't true emptiness. My emptiness was really aversion to not wanting disturbance. Was the clock disturbing the emptiness? Now, I was wrestling with that sound, with aversion. When we honor the true nature, it's wonderful. Yes, it's flowing. I told you how Ajahn Chah would ask me what I'm going to do in the future sometimes, and when he questioned me again about it. And I said, well, you know, I still was thinking, oh, this enlightenment thing, I'll figure that out. And then I told him again, I'm going to be a doctor. And he went, there's a lot of doctors. (laughs) Then he looked me right in the eyes and said, can they cure death? And he said, he smiled and he said, If you become a doctor of the spirit, you can find the cure for birth and death. We generate the agony around change by that grasping. When there's letting go, then as things come and go, the light, the dark, the growing, the subsiding, the pleasing, the painful, the harmonious, the disharmonious. Forms like stars flickering in the night sky, wonderful existence that keeps merging into true emptiness, two names for one sacred suchness. This deathless, undying, true nature, not just empty words. As we're practicing dying, practicing letting a sound die, revealing its empty nature, practicing, reflecting on the bubbling, resonating nature of moods, sensations, the flow of the day. Beginning to recognize that sky-like, unmoving, what the Buddha called 
Tathagata Garbha, this, this womb, this matrix that gives rise to this wondrous reality, this undying heart. It's all sacred. Sri Nisagadatta, excuse me, Sri Neem Kroli Baba, this wonderful saint who was Ram Dass's teacher, who was a huge inspiration for Tanisha and me and many, many others, said it's better to see God in everything than to try to figure it all out. Everything's sacred. The Buddha knew by contemplating the nature of thought, his true empty nature, he didn't look to a thought to try to figure out who he was. Because it's so obvious, a thought that goes through the heart is like a bubble that keeps bursting. Yet we take a bubble to be the whole ocean, the Buddha said, when when a thought comes, you're terrible, we believe that. Our whole being, which is actually vast, We're hypnotized by this thought. Or thought, I'm the greatest, and everybody else is stupid. People hypnotized by these arrogant thoughts. Harming. People hypnotized. Hijacked by thoughts that just judge whole classes, races of people, just dismissing denigrating, not understanding, understanding the true empty nature of thought. We realize whatever one says about something, it it changes the next moment. That's why at its heart, the Buddha said it's so important to learn to not just depend on thinking. Use, he said, use thinking skillfully. The Buddha was an amazing communicator. He used language to encourage, to point. But he knew that language had limitation. That it doesn't tell us who we are. Whatever phrase is empty. As we learn to uh, recognize the ephemeral nature of thought, then we learn to rest in our indescribable, all-encompassing, luminous heart. The feeling of our body, touching, 
ground, that pressure is appearing within our heart, vibrating, pulsing, whatever the feeling tone is. We focus on it, or focus on the sensation of our breathing. We'll notice that form is empty of solidity. The the in-breath expands, contracts. Or Dawn's example of, that I think she... Remember, I might be wrong to attribute this to you, Utejaniya, about touching the fingers together. Touching the fingers. That gentle, pulsing sensations appearing within the heart. That sky-like, that pulsing, tingling, pressure, like stars twinkling in a vast, aware sky. When we focus on the body, or on a feeling, or on a thought form, and recognize its changing nature, realize the stress that comes from wanting it to be other than what it is. We realize it's not true to say it's me. We can say it, but it's not really mine. as one lets go of focusing, or as Sri Nisargadatta says, wisdom says, I'm no thing. Whatever our attention investigates, when we see it really changing, we know, well, that's not really mine. Wisdom says, I'm no thing. We let go and we touch that peaceful, ground. It's not coming, not going. Yet within that sky, everything's manifesting. Compassion says, I'm everything, Nisargadatta goes on to say. Wisdom says, I'm nothing. Compassion says, I'm everything. Between these two banks, the river of the awakened one flows. We focus, we recognize, we let go, we welcome, we let go. Encouraging a contemplation of the sacred today. Sometimes the opening to this vastness of ourself can really be a little scary. And that's when we remember that grounding 
any form, especially the body or the feeling of touching the earth. Yes, it's still moving, but the vibration of the body touching ground, just let the attention be there. And remember, this is sacred as it's pulsing, revealing its wondrous nature within the heart, but we're steadying ourselves, steadying the mind if there's turbulence. Or we can touch our fingers of the two hands together. That's the steadying dimension. You can still notice the flickering, changing nature, but because we're staying with a form, that first foundation, it steadies the heart. And can one, practicing on an out-breath, relaxing, letting go of trying to hold anything, and for a moment just get a sense of the skylight. like a mother behind a child on a swing. Child's getting used to learning how to do the swing, so the mother's standing behind the child, child's sitting on the swing, the mother lets go, and the child swings forward. And the child swings back, and the mother just touches the child for a moment, then lets go, swing, and touching each out-breath. This mother of awareness, we're learning to relax and let go and just rest in awareness, the open heart. Then on an in-breath, we can just steady on the sensation or on a word like Buddha or peace or whatever our phrase is. And then practicing on an out-breath, letting that word dissolve and just savoring that silence, that ease. And even if it's uncomfortable, remember, even the difficult, the challenging, is also sacred. The Buddha called it a noble truth. Even suffering. Not to be ashamed of that experience is also within the sky-like nature, but if we allow ourselves to be with that which is not easy to be with, the Buddha said we get ennobled. That helps us then understand how we are perpetuating. We can see these currents of wanting and not wanting. And little by little, learn how to release. Sometimes one can be nervous about this emptiness. When I grew up, there was a big thing about making something of yourself. God, not very exciting. I'm, I'm going to be empty. <laughs> and someone says, is it good? And you could say, well, 
She's been practicing for years. She dropped into empty now, what was it, about three years ago? No, she hadn't moved. Um, I, I think she's all right. She's, I think she's pretty empty. Uh, you know, we can think, oh gosh, I'm going to become an enlightened doorknob. Um, and our teacher, Ajahn Chah, told us, don't be afraid of emptiness. He said it's like a a bell or like this big gong because of its emptiness when it might look like it's not doing much but because of its empty nature when something touches it. It can respond. can respond but when we're afraid of empty space we have to get our efficiency experts saying got to tell you Kitty Sarah it's wasting space you know you could keep Zafu's in there (laughs) I, I won't do it but you could keep Zafu's in there and you know clock and a clock you got to be ready. This is me. What if the clock doesn't work and I've got to be somewhere? Sometimes I have two clocks. That's called a real problem. <laughs> got to have the clock in there and then the extra clock in case that clock doesn't work. And you know what happens when you try to ring that clunk. You know, when, when the bell is just full and when, when the heart when Kuan Yin is back there at ease, that empty, deep listening, and yet she can respond with kindness. And by deep listening, if there's something that needs firmness, she can respond with protection. She, When one of her deep listening hands and eyes, she has an arrow, she can respond by penetrating and touching the heart. One of our hands, through deep listening, she realized someone needs to be protected. She can respond with a shield, respond with a sword to cut through the nonsense. The response, the beautiful, appropriate, wise, effective response comes out of that empty, deep listening. And we get afraid, and we forget. But the practice, I I work a lot with anxiety. A lot with, I mean, my dad, bless his soul. He helped me with so many things, but one of his motto was, son, anticipate. (laughs) And, you know, there's some wisdom there. But, you know, you can anticipate so much, the computers, what did this happen, what did this happen? That fills that bell up with a lot of stuff and you get a lot of things touching it clunk. And anticipate, yes, thank you, Dad. That's 
It's important. Also, in time, I have to add, he loved what we were doing. Took some time. So, Guan Yin is also called the bestower of fearlessness. So, these sacred words, when we let a sacred word like Namo Guan Yin dissolve, we learn to trust the listening, trust the heart, deepening the trust in the power and efficacy of letting the Buddha. Kuan Yin be in the driver's seat, that deep listening. Let our manifestation. So it might look like letting go. Yes, it's letting go. But there's a, as Tanisra so beautifully described, the Buddha was letting go, but he responded powerfully to the needs of the many. When we do this, our being expands and includes. Finishing with my favorite phrase from Master Hua. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My nature is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my way. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My nature is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my way.
So, how's the sound? It's not coming out, huh? How about now? Is that better? Can you hear me? Mostly? Okay. In the back they're saying okay. Uh, so today is Thanksgiving Day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.